served at Runner's Camp this week? If you were a volunteer at Runner's Camp this week, could you just wave your hand real high so we know who you are? Thank you so much. It takes lots of capable volunteers to shepherd 200 kids all week, and we appreciate your investment. We believe that God is in the process of gathering worshipers from amongst all peoples for his name, and uh, it's like he recruited a couple hundred more this week. We're very excited about what he's doing there. We are concluding today our kind of survey fast through the Old Testament in the last number of weeks. Uh, we're going to finish with the last three of the minor prophets, and if you're a guest today, a conversation with the minor prophets is kind of like looking right at the end of a double-barrel shotgun. So... Um, you know, buckle up and know that the end is near, okay, in more ways than one. So let's, uh, we probably should just stop and pray at that point and get ready for what the prophets have to say to us, okay? Lord God, we, we bow before you, um, who, the one who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And we ask today that you might equip us with everything good that we need for doing your will, that we might be ready to do what is pleasing to you through the Lord Jesus, who deserves glory forever and ever. Help us hear well, see our lives well, obey well to these uh, strong words that come to us in your love today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our, in our bedroom on the far side of the bed at our home sits a desk. It's sat there for many, many years, probably 10 or 15 years. Um, I bought it, and it had a nasty finish, so I sat out in the back deck, and I sanded that thing, and I stripped that finish off, and then I removed all the knobs, and something happened and I made a fatal error. I moved it into the bedroom unfinished. And it has sat in our bedroom unfinished for lo these many years, probably 10, maybe as many as 15 years. Um, Which is indicative of one thing. It's not a priority for me. It's just not a priority for me to finish uh, the desk. Um, Now, Mercifully, it also is not a priority for my wife. Um, or, or she's just given up all hope. Um, one of the two. Because it would, it would, I'll put this delicately, it would damage our relationship if something was a priority for her and I had not made it a priority for me for load 10 to 15 years. Uh, if you're not married, that does not bode well for your relationship, if, if that were to be the case. Um, for this simple reason, because when, when I don't prioritize what matters to her, I don't prioritize her. And uh, that's a very scary thought to most husbands at this moment <laughs> who are sitting in front of me. But it is even scarier when we come to the realization that that same truth is true in terms of our relationship to God. When we don't prioritize what matters to God, we have not prioritized God. 
when we put on hold the things that matter to God, the things He has asked of us, His priorities for us, what are we saying about the priority of God in our days? This is the concern that's addressed by the first of our three prophets that we're going to look at today, the prophet Haggai. And if you would like to open up your Bibles and find Haggai, feel free to use your index. It's in the sticky pages way at the back end of the Old Testament. And it's only two chapters, probably only a couple of pages in your Bible. Each of the prophets that we look at today have something to say to us about our worship. They have something to say about what it means for followers of Christ to offer acceptable worship to God. And Haggai starts us. Um, let me set the scene. That'll be probably most helpful to understand his message. Way back in 586 B.C., the pe- God's people were taken captive by the Babylonians. The city of Jerusalem fell, and the temple was destroyed, which was a huge deal because that was the centerpiece of their worship of God. Set them apart from all other peoples. It's where God manifests his presence. It was the visible demonstration that God is with them, and that was destroyed in that captivity. About 50 years, after 50 years of captivity, God in his kindness began to allow the people to return to the land and, and they were charged to begin to rebuild the temple. And so they did in the year 536. That lasted about two years until opposition came to the rebuilding and they stopped. For 14 years they stopped. And it's at that point that the prophet Haggai begins to speak in the first chapter Of his book, he says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. Now, now don't miss this. This would be like me saying, The time has not yet come for me to refinish the desk. It's been in my bedroom for 15 years. Okay? The, the temple has been unrebuilt. They've not been working on it for 14 years. And they're saying, I don't, I don't think it's time yet. Um, they're procrastinating on something that matters a great deal to God. This centerpiece of worship, this evidence of the presence of God in their midst as a people. They were procrastinating for one simple reason. They were acting out their priorities. And we pick up on it in the next couple verses. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. That's what God said. Is, Is it a time then for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin. See, they were living out their priorities. They valued the building of their own houses above building the temple, above building God's house. Um, You know, these paneled houses, it just could mean they were working on their roofs, but I'm thinking after 14 years, it probably meant more than that. It represented um, kind of luxurious additions to their home. I think they were putting in pools. They were expanding the deck. They're adding a rec room. They're finishing out the attic. You get the idea. Um, Having nicer houses was more important, a higher priority than having God. Um, 
Is there a higher priority in your life than having a life marked by God's presence and by his blessing? You know, I, I did a very unscientific survey, but the results were fascinating, and I think they're probably valid. I googled the, the term, I put it in quotes, so I just got this term, dream home. I pulled up over 11 million hits. Okay. Then I googled retirement planning, and I pulled up over 6 million hits. And then I googled knowing God, and I pulled up over a million hits. And I was thinking, this probably represents the dreams of most of the people in the community in which we live. I want my dream home, and I want a well-fed retirement. And oh yeah, I like to know God too. What dream is preoccupying you? I think Haggai is asking us that question. And there are consequences to having your dreams upside down. In the next verses, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. It's a repeated phrase that Haggai uses. Think about what you're doing. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Do you relate to that? See, the very thing that they treasured, they lost by the kindness of God. It's by the kindness of God that their purse has holes in it. Um, This is his loving protective discipline of his people. You pick it up down in verse 9. It says, you expected much, but see, God says, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Um, God would not let his people be ensnared by lesser things than himself. He didn't want them to experience their lesser dreams so that it wouldn't rob them of their great dream of knowing him. See, he's bringing loving discipline to them, just like Proverbs says. Proverbs says, look, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And these Holy purses are God's loving discipline. God is compelling nature to do his bidding when his people will not, and he's rescuing them from themselves, from these lesser dreams, by their suffering and hardship. Not all suffering has this purpose, but God can and does wield it this way for his good purposes. 
I've had a number of conversations along this line. I had one again this week with somebody who just, is, just feels like he's getting beat down all the time. He raises up his head, he gets beat down at work, in life generally. He just can't seem to get his head above water. And I, I read this passage from Haggai to him and I said, could it be that this is what God is doing for you? That it's because you won't repent of your sin and get right with God that he keeps pushing down on you. And he's not going to let you up until you turn to him. See, to put God on hold while we finish our affairs is dangerous business. It robs us of what God has for us. And so, again in verse 7, Haggai says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought. Are you chasing after the wind? Never able to quite catch what you're chasing or finding it unsatisfying when you do? See, this is the kindness of God this morning, drawing back you back to himself as sinner. And I'm just betting that for some of you, when I read these verses and we talk about them, it's like God sat down next to you and he's taken your face and he's turned it towards him and he said, this is about your life now. But God does something absolutely amazing in the next verse. He says to the people, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He gives his wayward people another shot. He says, look, you've been procrastinating for 14 years. Let me give you another chance. Do what I ask you and experience my pleasure because you have honored me. See, and that's what we were made for. That's what satisfies the longing in our souls. Nobody said it better that I've found outside of the pages of Scripture other than C.S. Lewis. And he says this, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And that's the message that Haggai brings on God's behalf to his people. Watch how they respond. It's fascinating. In verse 12, Zerubbabel, Joshua... And the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. He had been against them. Now he says, I'm with you. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. See, they'd been procrastinating. They'd been disobedient for 14 years. But now, in a span of just 23 days, they hear the message. They got their stuff. They're back on track. 
And that's, that's what God is looking for in worship from us this morning. Some of you have had stuff. It's, it's like my desk. You've been procrastinating on something that mattered to God for how long? And today, through the prophet Haggai, written some 2,500 years ago, he is speaking to you and saying, let's get back on track so you can know my pleasure and honor me once again. And he's just given you that opportunity. Um, what's the thing that you need to obey God in today? The thing you've been putting off. Haggai says that worship, acceptable worship to God, requires prompt obedience to God. Well, the next prophet that we're going to walk through, going to run through this morning is Zechariah. It's the biggest of the minor prophets, and um, he's a contemporary of Haggai, writing at the same time, really with the same purpose. He's trying to encourage God's people to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, worship God right. Okay. He has, in one night, eight visions. And they comprise the first six chapters of the book. We're going to jump in right after that in chapter 7 of the book of Zechariah because he too has something to say to us about our worship that I think is really helpful for us. Um, Chapter 7, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So get the idea that the people have sent some representatives to the prophets to ask them a question. Are we supposed to keep grinding out this fasting as we've been doing? Is that still required of us? Um, And God answers them, This way, in verse 4, the word of the Lord Almighty came to Zechariah. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, okay, while they're in captivity, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest? And prosperous? So God raises the question not of what rituals are they supposed to do, how are they supposed to assemble together, but why do they do what they do? Why are you doing it? And, uh, you know, for people who roll in and out of church every Sunday for years on end, it's a good question for us. Why are you here? Why do you do what you do? Um, Who's all this really for? Is it really for God? Or is it just going through the motions? Or does it have something more to do about you? In the verses that follow, God speaks to Zechariah again. And he, he shows him the life out of which Godward, God pleasing worship flows. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien. We could read immigrant or the poor. 
in your hearts, do not think evil of each other. If you flipped over a chapter, same kind of themes in chapter 8. These are the things you're to do, says the Lord. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Don't plot evil against your neighbor. And don't love to swear falsely. I I hate all this, declares the Lord. Um, He's telling us that a big part of our worship of God is our relationships with one another especially with people in need. Um, You can't live in your paneled house unconcerned about those in need all week and then show up here on Sunday and expect God to be excited that you're here. This is how he responded to the people in Zechariah's day. In verse 11, they refused to pay attention They stubbornly turned their backs, stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and wouldn't listen to the law or the words the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, he says, they did not listen. So when they called, I did not listen. That may explain why worship is so disengaging for some of us. See, how you treat the least of these either endears or taints your worship. Honestly, which is it doing for you probably? See it? Back again in chapter 8, just following the section I read. The word of the Lord Almighty came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will become joyful, glad occasions, and happy festivals. Therefore, love truth and peace. Following his description of a, a life, a compassionate and just life, lived in integrity, in truth and peace. He says, that makes your worship assemblies joyous. The absence of that makes it miserable. See, the way we treat one another affects the acceptability of our worship. There's a horizontal component. Um, Now, Zechariah, when you read his book, I hope you will sometime, he has a lot to say, a lot of little glimmers and forward looks to the coming king. That's going to rescue God's people from this whole mess they've been in. We know that to be the Messiah, Jesus. And here's one example of the way he describes it. See if it sounds familiar to you. See if it reminds you of Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. There's that imagery again. God's gathering worshipers from the nations, from all peoples. His rule will extend from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Of course, if you would just flip your Bible over a couple pages to the New Testament, Christ is coming into Jerusalem for the very last time 
And we read this in Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem, came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them, and on Palm Sunday he rode that foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. You know, Jesus is making a statement. I am the Messiah. I am the king. The prophecies are fulfilled in me, he says. But Zechariah urges upon us that the way we treat others matters in our worship. Okay. Haggai says that obedience matters in worship. And Malachi, the last prophet we want to look at this morning, has something to say to us about our, our worship as well. Now, Malachi comes about 100 years later, give or take a little bit. And after he speaks his message from God, there's 400 years of silence where there's no recorded revelation until Jesus comes. This is the last thing God has to say to his people. It's real interesting. This, listen to how God, the message God wants his people to remember at the end of the Old Testament, the last thing he says. Here it is, Malachi chapter 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. God wants to burn in his people's mind for the next 400 years. I love you. And I have loved you always. Um, And of course, you can imagine how this affects God's people and how they respond to this. They respond by saying, "Um, how have you loved us? Excuse me, God? You loved us? I don't remember, you know, getting flowers and chocolate and all that. How'd you love us? (laughs) You say you loved us, but we really have no awareness of you loving us. This is how far they've fallen away from God. But God in his kindness, rather than toasting them on the spot, um, he answers them. Same verse. Um, Can you guys help me and advance that slide for me? Thank you. It says, um, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved Jacob. What God is, he's taking us back to a story where there are two brothers and God chose Jacob to be the one that he loved. In other words, God is saying, you know I loved you because I chose you. You know, there's a restaurant that doesn't even exist anymore, but I remember it. Uh, it's in the city of Fort Worth and it's up on a hillside and it looks over the Trinity River uh, it's a beautiful place. You can see the Fort Worth skyline off in the distance. And I remember that restaurant because um, a long time ago, I took a young lady to that restaurant. And we sat at a day. I don't remember what the food was. I don't remember what the restaurant was really like. Um, what I remember is that I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. Kind of a long pause, but she did say yes. Um, 
See, she chose me on that day in love. She chose me in that place uh, on that day. And I, I remember that. I cherish that. Um, and uh, those of us who know Christ here, we have the same crazy story. Somebody who knew all our dirt chose us. Um, someone that we would betray every time we made a wrong choice chose us to love us. Um, God says, that's how you know I love you. I chose you. And while they are questioning God's love for them, God has similar questions about their love for him. Um, Down in verse 6, the rest of the chapter is, is really about that. He says, look, a son honors his father, right? And a servant, his master. If I'm a father to you, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master to you, Where's the respect to me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, you ask. There's a pattern in Malachi. It's horribly convicting. Uh, but, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty, Oh, oh, that one of you, and listen to these words, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled, and of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? While we no longer bring these kinds of sacrifices, clearly there are some principles here that are sobering to us. First of all, it's entirely possible to offer worship to God that He hates. In other words, it's entirely possible that some of us have motored into this room this morning and offered praise to God, and he would rather we just shut up and go away. Please understand, I'm not giving you an excuse. I'm giving you a warning. We must honor and give God the respect he's due. by bringing him our very best. Um, I just 
Just think about it this morning. Um, Have you honored God with your worship? Have you showed him respect? Um, Were you here on time? Small way to show respect. Were you prepared? I mean, what kept you from being on time and prepared? Was it a cup of coffee? Was it something you had to watch last night too late so you couldn't get up and be ready? Um, bring your best. And you know, we pass the plate, and I, I know this makes all of us uncomfortable. We pass the plate, we put stuff in. Is that your best? You know, the Old Testament has this really neat doctrine called the doctrine of the first fruits. That's when, when they had a harvest come in, uh, the first fruit that was born by the grain or by whatever, uh, the firstborn of their flocks, they offered that to God. It was their best, their first. You know, and wait and see what they had left over. You know, is it the first check you write or is it the last, if you can, at the end of the month with what's left? The problem, of course, is for most of us, there's not much left at the end of the month. And we're back to paneling our houses and neglecting God. And, of course, he warns us that this needs to be done gladly. This is our privilege. Not like in verse 13 there where it says, um, What a burden. What a burden to have to go to church again. What a burden to have to give this money away. I've got so many things I do. What a burden to have to study my Bible. What a burden to have to be in small group. Just a burden. It's all a burden. Worship of God is a burden. We would never say it that way, but we say it that way. And God is not pleased. What God is looking for us is stuff like this. From, from 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Put it in the plate, do a little dance, God is thrilled. Okay. Um, you know where this all stems from, I think? The way the, where the book started. I think they missed the wonder of being loved by God. Nothing else made sense. See? Um, you know, God said, I have loved you. And they said, oh, really? You know, it's almost like, tell me something important. You know? They failed to know the wonder of being loved by their father and master and king. And so they brought worship that didn't treasure God enough to prepare and bring their best. And God responded like this, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Somebody who keeps the best for themselves, who's more concerned about their paneled house than they are about what God's doing. For I'm a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. 
Malachi goes on and raises this idea of robbing God of worthy worship in chapter 3. You don't have time to read it this morning. You should. It's provocative. Make you think. Um, But he does raise one thing that I do want to show to you before we wrap up. Um, And he returns to the earlier theme from Zechariah that our worship is either tainted or enriched by the way we treat one another. And he says, especially in our marriages. And in chapter 2, he says, um, there's another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. Okay. Why isn't God near to me in worship? Well, it's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and in spirit? They are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And here we see God is a party to to the marriages we form. He's there. He's the witness. He's the covenant maker. Um, When we break faith with the one we have covenanted to be faithful to until death, with God as our witness and covenant maker, it affects not only our marriages but our relationship with God as well. It taints our worship and God says, I won't accept your worship. Just more broadly, could it be that the way you are treating or have treated your spouse is the reason God seems so distant to you this morning? Could it be that the way you treated your spouse yesterday is affecting your relationship with God this morning? Um, Peter picks up on that idea. He says, husbands, I have no idea why husbands are singled out here. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Guys, it's, it's the clear teaching of the Bible. You mistreat your wife. God doesn't accept your worship. He does not hear your prayers. And in as strong a words as possible, God says, I just hate divorce. Hate it. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. You know, he hates the violence that that leads up to a divorce. The, the words, the harsh words, the physical blows if it comes to that. God hates that stuff. He says, so you guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith because we live in a day when there are siren voices all around us who are telling you, you ought to just break faith. You ought to just break. And God hates that. So guard yourselves. God is the God of reconciliation and far too many who say, I follow Christ, are quitting on marriages that God has witnessed and has formed and longs to heal if we'll guard ourselves and turn to him. So today we see God is on a mission to raise up worshipers from amongst all peoples. And Haggai says that these worshipers 
people like you and me, we need to be promptly obedient to what God's saying this morning. And if that's part of the deal, you know, it's our custom at the close of the service. You can come forward for dedicatory prayer where you kneel here with a friend or a family member or just by yourself or grab one of our leaders who are in the front and you pray. And you say, okay, God, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to make it right. Um, Zechariah says that the way we treat other people in this room really matters, especially people in need. Um, Malachi says that we need to bring our best, that that's acceptable worship to God. Um, See, Jesus says in an interesting kind of connecting point, he says there's a time coming and it's now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God's out there seeking worshipers. Um, not half-hearted, part-time worshipers. Not people who give lip service on Sunday, but then don't show his compassion the rest of the week. Not worshipers who are going to worship him wholeheartedly just as soon as they're done paneling that house. He is looking, he is seeking wholehearted worshipers who will follow him and obey him now, this day, when they leave this room. I pray that you will be counted amongst those worshipers. Let's bow. Father, we're sorry. We've made a bit of a mess of it. And with depressing regularity, we've um, procrastinated and mistreated and offered you far from our best. And um, so we're sorry. pray that um, like the people in Haggai's day we turn it around you give us grace to turn it around today hear our prayers um, find pleasure in the worship we offer you now wholehearted worship thankfulness Jesus for what you have done to bring the love of God to us to the likes of us So this is for you. May it be a foretaste of the rest of this week and the rest of our lives. We offer this in the name of Christ.